0: That there are, uh, I say, anecdotes after anecdotes, but all connected, all revealing. Uh, some involving theater, theater in Georgia. It's rather interesting. So My Fair Lady is now a film, mm-hmm. and it's, we know it's a marvelous mm-hmm. musical. And My Fair Lady, the story you tell, it's quite hilarious. Again, indicating hierarchy of values and a bit of the nuttiness involved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, uh, the audit, would you mind telling the story? Yeah, yeah about the Municipal Auditorium. Yes. Oh, that
1: was, the d- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the, min- the Municipal Auditorium in Atlanta was, was segregated. And uh, the, the kids in the student movement decided to take a crack at it, and they decided to do this by uh, having some of the young Negro actors and actresses in the Atlanta University Center Players uh, go down to see My Fair Lady, which was, you know, a traveling road show and was in Atlanta that day, and everybody in town was going to see My Fair Lady. Uh, and they, they sold white tickets and Negro tickets. <laughs> you know. The, and if a Negro showed up and got very tickets. Very fairly. <laughs> right. Very fair. Um, and uh, what, what we did was a white Southern professor at Spelman College, Georgia born and bred, went down and bought a bunch of tickets. Uh, best seats in the house, right up front, center. Uh, and they gave it to him happily, you see. And then he turned them over to the Negro kids in the cast, a beautiful assemblage of people. The director looks like an Othello and the stage designer a uh, very, very uh, interesting guy uh, named uh, Vess Harper and uh, a number of the students, actors and actresses with that flair I guess for drama and for, for uh, you know, uh, elegance the w- Elegance, right, the way they were impeccably dressed that day. and They went down and they, they showed their tickets and everybody got flustered, you know, they had (laughs) the wrong, and before anybody could do anything the guy uh, the nervous guy taking the tickets had torn them in half, given them the stubs and they found their own seats while everybody was sort of going into a whirl what to do with them and they were approached and told to leave uh, their seats so the show wouldn't go on and they said, well, very quietly, patiently, we can wait and uh, the manager got excited and he went back to the office and he called up the mayor uh, mayor Hartsfield, a uh, uh, very white, very southern, but also liberal and changing through the years, and, and very wise man. He said, Mayor, you know, the, here are all these <laughs> sitting in these seats right up front where everybody can see them. And the uh, mayor said, Well, he said, I, I just have one bit of advice for you. He said, Just dim the lights. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, then what happened, the mayor had somehow to save his conscience, you know, and the law said, the law-abiding man that he was, the law said there's a Negro section and a white section. So he announced to the press that he had just declared those six seats a Negro section. <laughs>
0: that saved everything. <laughs> this is marvelous. Again, how hierarchy of values work, you have another story, again dealing with theater, and this is a boy. It's yeah. a southern white boy, his father from South Carolina, right. who wants to be an actor. His father so, was a textile
1: mill owner. You know, how a more southern can you Now, get?
0: what's more, again, weighing values. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, your college, the college where you taught, spent were doing Finian's Rainbow. Yes. With a mixed cast, right. mostly Negro, mixed audience. And there's a marvelous role of Og, the mm-hmm. leprechaun. And this boy wanted to do Og very much. Yeah. He was a wonderful Og, too. He's a very talented. So, actor. doing Og, even though he was raised anti Negro, segregationist, Doing the role of Og was much more important, and he did it. Indeed, there was a love scene with a uh, beautiful young Negro girl right. there on that stage. Right. But again, what is most important? Yeah. I think, aren't you hitting on a very strong uh, sociological and psychological truth here that I we hope haven't so. touched enough? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that
1: too many people, this is not only true, of, it's true of historians, it's true of psychologists, and it's true of ordinary people who read historians and psychologists. We have too great a sense of the past. We think things are too fixed, and we think people are too fixed, and we don't realize how quickly people can change under the circumstances. Uh, And how history can be tossed aside by just uh, a change in a very immediate and very pressing situation. Uh, Go ahead. You were speaking. Well, like like the simple scene of uh, a Negro coming into a party and the being introduced to a white southerner who has never met a negro on a, this kind of social level of equality before. And he's introduced and a negro extends his hand to shake, and a white southern who has never shaken a negro's hand in his life, and has all the weight of his history and background, and he'd never think of doing it under other circumstances, but everybody around him has shaken hands. And here is the pressure of just this one second, and without even thinking, he reaches out and
0: shakes hands for the first time in his life, and it's a break is made. Again, uh, the, the, the social pressure, status—all this. Again, we think of the southern staff sergeant in the mess hall oh. on the ship. What is most important? Oh, because you have again, and also how legally it changes. There's one here, the bus scene in Atlanta um, mm. in your Southern Mystique. Uh, yeah. It's after the Supreme Court decision. And a Negro sitting up front, and the woman says, the white woman says, would you please move in the back? He says, well, I have a right to sit here, madam. Haven't you read the papers? She calls the bus driver over. She says, removing the bus driver, sh- shrugs his shoulders. They call the police from the street, and the policeman looks at her, looks at the and he says to the woman, haven't you read the papers? So I guess this word mystique hmm. is really the word that we should challenge, shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah, I th- this is the problem.
1: The, uh, the Negro has been a mystical... Personality. Some, you know, some liberals uh, uh, themselves, uh, I think, play on this a little too, and uh, e- some Negro writers play on this and, and make something a little mysterious of the Negro. Uh, segregations do it, and even liberals do it, and they. Well, you find when you you're living with people and you're doing things with them, it's all nonsense. That the, the whole Baldwin put it. You know, they think that Baldwin is one of these. Uh, mystique fellows about race because he does fall into that occasionally He talks in the fire next time he talks about the darkness of the Negro and how the white sees death in the darkness of the Negro or how the white sees sensuality in the darkness of the Negro but at other times uh, and I think this is the real and essential Baldwin at other times he says and he says says it kind of sternly and flatly and no business about it he says color is not a human fact, it is a political fact. And I think there he's put his his hand on it, you know. There's nothing mystical about it all, we have made it this and we can unmake it. And the same thing about the Southern white and the same thing about the South, nothing mysterious about the South. Southerners
0: behave like people behave. It's a question then of circumstance uh, through the years, of pressure through the (laughs) years. Uh, You use the phrase, uh, the molding of opinion, somewhere you think opinion and you speak of the power of mass media, of politicians, the, the elite in a sense I guess because of the power of mass communications. Mm. Yes, I, Southern people like, are like I guess
1: people in, in the American nation totally, very much subject to th- what other people think. And as their notion changes about what other people think, they are forced to rethink their old values. Television, has had a tremendous effect on the South. We, we I don't think we can even begin to uh, imagine uh, what has happened in the minds of people who, whether they like it or not, you know, before you can race across the room to flick the switch, there's a Negro and a white together. Uh, you learn things on television and uh, uh, Something is happening through this process of mass communication. In the country is becoming nationalized in the communication
0: sense, and nobody can stop this. Mm. You know, your last chapter in this book, *Other Mystics*, sp- speaks. Uh, we speak of the South, and you say it really mirrors the nation. Yeah. That is you. Yeah. You know how how right. easy it is for the North to be yeah. self-righteous in the matter. Yeah. Would you mind? Because you you go mm. way back into history in this. The removal. I didn't realize it, the removal of the anti-slavery clause from the Declaration of Independence. Yes. Uh, well, my point about the South as a
1: mirror, I think too many of us uh, in, in the North particularly look upon the South as somewhere else. You, know, it's behind, you, you look at it through a glass and it's somewhere else and you can study it and you can attack it and you can criticize it. And my point is that no, it's not a glass which you look through, it's a mirror in which you see yourself, in which the nation sees itself. It's a crazy mirror. It distorts, it exaggerates all blemishes and all features. But there's nothing in the mirror, in this crazy mirror, that isn't in the original and uh, every defect which we attribute to the South uh, racism, uh, uh, this fear of strangers, this provincialism, this conservatism, this the false religiosity which you very often find in the Bible Belt I think these are national characteristics they're, they exist in an exaggerated form in the South and so we can look at them and sort of put them aside but they're national characteristics uh, the South, in fact, in this sense, the South is very useful to us today uh, because uh, we need to see our faults magnified so that we'll do something about them. And we I think we're the kind of nation that uh, we're not sensitive enough. Well, I guess it's true of other nations, too, but I, I know our nation best. We're not sensitive enough. It takes an, a, an awful lot of trouble and hurt to make us realize something is wrong, and so we things are going along fine and boom, a crisis. You know, we don't, uh, we don't have a social security system until we have 15 million uh, men unemployed, you know. We, we don't declare the oneness of the nation until we, uh, part of the nation secedes. Uh, we don't begin reading James Baldwin until there's rumbling in the streets and so on. And so we n- sort of need crises to make us see what we don't ordinarily see because it's there, but but it's lying beneath the surface. And so
0: the South is this kind of a situation for us. We can learn a lot from it if we try. Yes. As you're saying, the switching from the Southern Mystique, book, to the other book, the Slick New Abolitions, we are learning a great deal through what these young ourselves, through the crisis, but through this new development, this non-violent, active approach on the part of these young who are, apparently they, they become our conscience in a way, don't they? Yeah, I think that uh, all of us, even the most
1: cool and casual of us, uh, are touched by the phenomenon of the the something uh, very innocent about these young people and at the same time very wise and very sophisticated. Uh, Something very charming and very humorous and yet very serious. And here too, we see in them some of the problems that beset us. We see in them kids who have made a decision to move away from the, the ordinary lines of life which most of us follow. And there's a sense of envy and a sense of joy which we can have in seeing this. We can, we can
0: learn from them. Whence comes this strength? This is the question again. You see, there's something new because as the abolitionists were ethical people of high ethical mm-hmm. standards, you know, and this, this ebullience was lacking perhaps because mm-hmm. of a puritanical new england background possibly as a basis but where does the ebullience the resiliency uh the courage that we not you because you've been involved that many of us up north lack and i use the phrase rather than to become our conscience which certainly is a cop-out on my part in saying (laughs) that isn't it when comes this particular haven't we been it's told of a silent generation just right. ten yeah. years ago? You silent mentioned silent and,
1: and uncommitted. Yes. This is, in fact, people yes. were talking this way about all our young young people, and then in, in 1960, uh, I really don't see as many people talking ab- about the uncommitted generation because how can you? They're the only evidence we have in the country today that, that there's life and spirit and motion and change, and how did they get it? Where did it come from? I, part of it is from youth. I, I like to think this, because when, you, uh, when you're when you asking how do people get the way they do, we always do this, we ask how do people get the way they do, and you think if you will only examine a person's life enough you can find out why he became the way he did. I have this white southern friend of mine uh, who is an ardent integrationist, and I've spent hours and hours with him in the past trying to find out what made him the way he did. I've talked to these Negro kids in SNCC and talked to them about their lives, trying to find out what was it about their lives that made them emerge the way they did. And you know what I find? That they didn't live any different lives than anybody else. And what this suggests to me is that we all have the potential to become this kind of person. We all have the possibility of this kind of ebullience, of this kind of youth. We all have the possibility of changing the way we are and changing the way we live. Now, these are ordinary people, ordinary kids, and at some point in their lives, something touched them. And I don't know why, and I can't put my finger on it. A sight, a vision, a voice, an action, I don't know, something touched them, and boom,
0: they were off. Somewhere in the middle, in the meat of your book of the new Abolitions, you speak of this one event, you know, the kids at Greensboro decided mm. to sit in, yeah. and how different ones who became part, very integrally, part of this, one, were affected by it in different parts of the country. Yeah. Negro kids, white kids, each one. And whatever it was, it, it must have been a different personal note that touched him, but the common chord was there. Yes.
1: Uh, you, see, uh, you see it happening. It's true what you said about the sit-ins. You know, there was Bob Moses in New York watching the sit-ins on television, and here he is today, a veteran of the Mississippi Wars. Uh... And there was Jim Foreman somewhere else, uh, probably in Chicago, <laughs> where he went to. Went to Roosevelt University. Right. <laughs> Isn't
0: uh, it, as you say, just, I think of these kids everywhere you see on the street, as you say, potentially everyone yeah, right. can be one of these, have this particular, I hate to use this phrase, nobility, and yet it is the word, you know. Humanness, perhaps. Yeah. And it can happen just like that.
1: Uh, I was in, earlier this summer, there was a hearing in Washington, and a bunch of Uh, uh, people came up from Mississippi, mostly Negro, to testify. And there was this uh, 12-year-old kid sitting up there in the witness stand, a veteran, you see. And I asked him, uh, Paul Goodman was on the interrogating panel, you know, Paul Goodman, very concerned with youth and education and all of that. He was a little staggered. He said, my God, you know, 12 years old, how did you get into this? And the kid says, well, uh, I was just standing on the street. (laughs) And this demonstration came along, and this cop came along, and he hit me in the stomach, and I went, ooh, and I joined the movement. it's <laughs> <laughs> marvelous.
0: You know, as you say, this, there's a marvelous sequence, and I switch now to Southern Mystique, on um, the Spellman Girl. I think this is uh, very revealing, you know, because uh, you quote Franklin Frazier, who wrote The Black Bourgeoisie, yeah, and how the yeah. middle-class Negro for years yes. has imitated, emulated, perhaps caricatured mm. unconsciously the white uh, yeah. middle-class values. Yeah. Uh, the, now, now, uh, before I ask about the Spellman girl, sure. this, now the, something has happened to the Negro middle-class too, hasn't it? It's not away from as it was before, is it? Uh, away from? Away from uh, less fortunate, shall we say, as they would put
1: it, Negroes. Uh, well, I think they're torn. I, I think this is what happened, because the, the Negro middle-class is caught up in this revolution too. And uh, w- one thing about being a Negro, whatever class you are, you, f- you can't escape the fact of color and race, although you can try. And so uh, you find a number of middle-class Negroes in the movement. You find in the small towns in the south, it's true, the, the working people and the farmers come into the churches and crowd into there for the mass rallies, but if there's always a, a, a local minister, a, a, lo- a local Negro teacher who steps out. It, ru- it
0: runs across class lines. Uh, but uh, you must talk about Spellman, because this college apparently has, for years, been known always emphasized manners and morals. Uh, I'm quoting you: the Spellman girl was, for generations, the recipient of well-meant advice from the teacher elders. Be nice, be well-mannered, and ladylike. Don't speak loudly. Don't get into trouble. Spellman was pious and sedate. Encrusted with traditions of gentility and moderation, and, and they indeed are this. They are, ladies. The f- Could you might say, tell, us, tell us about the Spellman girls, since you have taught them for as chairman of the history department? there. Well, you know,
1: I was I was a little taken aback by this. You know, I'd never taught in a women's college, and you know, maybe there's something of this in every women's college, uh, except that, as I said, the South exaggerates everything just a little, and and and, and I think any minority group exaggerates everything else. You see, and so. Uh, Spellman exaggerated what is, anyway, a, 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 a characteristic of uh, women's colleges. Uh, but what I found was that when the sit ins began, something happened to these students. They began to change. They began to think differently. Uh, they were no longer preoccupied with how to pour tea, they were preoccupied with going down to be on the picket line. This took the hierarchy of the college, you know, the old time administrators uh, uh, back. You know, what, what to do? What to do with this? I remember this uh, uh, student of mine. She's now, now she's not a student of mine anymore. Now she teaches me occasionally. She just graduated from Yale Law School, but she and I were sort of freshmen together at Spelman. I, as a teacher, she's a student, a girl from South Carolina, Marion Wright. She's now in Mississippi. And she's going to be the first Negro woman lawyer in Mississippi, but uh, a marvelous person. And she was at this time um, uh, involved in a sit in movement. And uh, as I told you before, we lived on campus, and she came into our living room one day with this petition which she was going to put up on a dormitory wall. People should sign it uh, to who was going to go down picketing today for her fellow students. And on the top of the petition, she had uh, put this heading, uh, Young Ladies Who Can Picket, Please Sign Below. <laughs> I, I thought this was such
0: a marvelous tradition. The yeah, the past and the present merging. Cuz yeah. you have that phrase, you know, in the past always been you can always tell a spellman girl, you know, uh, the way she walked, gracefully spoke, properly poured tea elegantly, all the attributes of finishing. Today you say the phrase you can always tell a spellman girl, she's always under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Again, isn't it interesting yeah. you speak of changes mm. how it works with both peoples, with negro and white. Yeah. How this, again, you say history cannot be, uh, even though traditional and rich and full, you mentioned Cash's History of the South, a very marvelous book, and yet that can be overly worked too, can't it, the mystique aspect? Yeah, because, well, Cash, for instance, makes a good deal
1: of uh, violence in the South, and... uh, it's a marvelous book, of yeah, course. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, I, but I happen to disagree with some yeah, of the conclusions, yeah. but it's the most beautifully written yeah. book, and it evokes the sense. In the but yeah. go ahead, you were saying yeah. about Cassius's yeah. flaw. But yeah, I should. Talk, I want to talk about his flaw. So yes. it's <laughs> such a good book. But he uh, emphasizes. The, uh, the violence in the South and the other attributes of the South. And this is what I mean by the mystique. He really gets you feeling when you finish this book that there's something about the South which we just can't change. Something strange and mysterious.
0: John Bartlow Martin said that too, I believe. An excellent reporter from yeah, Chicago. Right. He said, I think He, too he said had the deep that
1: South thing. says yes. never. You know, the deep South says never. His point was that the deep South is a deep South and you are not going to change it. Well, here we are. And this fall, the New York Times, uh, on one page, there were two stories this fall. Uh, one was the story that told about, uh, in New York, where white parents were, were picketing, objecting to the Negro kids going to white schools. And on the same page, it said, schools in Jackson, Mississippi, peacefully integrated. Well, that's change. Uh, and that's not, the South is no longer mysterious.
0: The the uh, I suppose what is most bullion about you again you see I can't help separating you from them because your whole approach as the approach of the young here is one in contrast to what we generally accept today as a hopeless or violent you see apparently in great hope you seem to this seems to be the recurring theme in both your works here
1: yeah I, I, I am I'm, I'm optimistic about this I, because I look all around and I see these people and I see the way they're working and I see people changing And uh, I think I've learned that you can't accept surface tensions as the reality, and you can't accept trouble as something to worry about. And all the trouble that we're going through now, which makes people pessimistic, you know, they read the headlines, they say, oh, it's terrible. People are rioting, and people are demonstrating, and people are going to jail, and it's just awful. Well, these are birth pangs. And you can't have progress unless you have trouble. And it seems strange, therefore, to be
0: optimistic in the face of this, but that's exactly why I am optimistic, because we're having trouble. Because the issue, again, the, uh, uh, it has come back to the early point you made about identity, finding out, Baldwin asked this, and despite the mystical approach, we don't know who we are, and nobody knows my name. It, it, mm. They say if you don't know my name, you don't know your own name. Exactly. Doesn't it come down again? Yeah. So the trouble is then, mm. since we uncover this, we become aware of our unawareness, isn't that it? Yeah, the, the nation... Uh,
1: We we really didn't know ourselves. We didn't know something very important about ourselves until the Negro began demonstrating in the streets. Now we learned something tremendously important. Just like I guess we're learning about other things. We didn't learn. It was funny. All the poor people have been with us for a long time. We just learned about poverty. And I guess it's like the maturing of a person. You learn things about yourself. And you, the the real maturity is learning the bad things about yourself. And it's part of growing up. And. uh, uh, it doesn't make you worse, it makes you better.
0: I'm thinking, as, as, as you say this, you mention the other aspects, and you speak about governmental policy, and mm. of course the general impression is, wow, is the government pushing this. And you right. show that exactly the opposite has been the case. There's been very little, yes. uh, surprisingly, yes. disturbingly little yes. action on the part of the federal government yeah. in this matter. Yeah. Well, and it's quite revealing and yeah. quite biting. There's been a great deal of misinformation
1: partly spread by the government itself but about its own powers uh, you remember after the, the uh, three uh, young f- people were uh, disappeared in Mississippi uh, and uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy came out and Burke Marshall came out and said well you know uh, we're bound, we're limited, there's legal uh, things that get in the way of our protecting people in Mississippi. It's just not true. In fact they were they were taken to task by a group of distinguished constitutional lawyers, Mark Howe of the Harvard Law School, led the list and they sent a statement uh, out uh, publicly and in their own quiet academic way they said to the Justice Department and the government of the United States, you know uh, that's not so. You know you do have the legal power to protect civil rights workers in Mississippi. You know there's a, 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 an old statute on our books which gives the president the power to use any means he sees fit to protect people's constitutional rights if a state
0: is unable or unwilling to protect them.
1: This power just has not been used. It hasn't been.
0: It's interesting how, with history indeed moving so fast, so quickly, the misinformation, this is perhaps is one of the great perils, is this misinformation. Uh, credit where credit is not due and credit not given where it is due. Yes. And the very fact that the young have done this thing is what has led, I suppose, to whatever developments have happened and whatever well, reforms yes. have taken place. Yes. It's the a very tec- thing that people decry. Uh, yes. The,
1: the, uh, you, read this morning, you read about people being arrested in, in Macomb. You read about several arrests taking place recently, a few this summer. They wouldn't have taken place if all of this energy hadn't been poured into the summer. And what, what happens, really uh... the government acts in a kind of uh... minor reaction to some major movement Uh, the negroes and whites and the civil rights movement pour tremendous tons of energy into
0: the struggle and it all comes out in little trickles of governmental action now coming back to the individual again that these young people and others like them are not superhuman you said it's within all of us the element they've Fear—they're scared, despite the singing. We haven't talked about the singing <laughs> movement, and uh, yeah. the songs they yeah. sing continuously. But the fear is there, and yet you mentioned this remarkable young Bob Moses. Yes. Well, he was going to Yale, is that it, or he—he he, he got his M.A. at Harvard mm-hmm. in philosophy.
1: Uh, just uh, when you meet him, uh, well, you—you you can't feel. Well, he's a civil rights leader. He's quiet and he doesn't talk much and he, uh, and uh, very modest and uh, but ju- just. Uh, uh. Well, you talk to people in Mississippi about Bob Moses, and they talk about him with as much reverence as people talk about Moses yes. in the Old Testament.
0: I um, remember this farmer, uh, the voice I heard of Hartman Turnbow and oh. Macomb, Mississippi, saying, Bob Moses. <laughs> well, Bob Moses was here, the rest <laughs> yeah. of it He was here, so he was there, yes. <laughs> out of the wilderness. You know, yeah. and, well, Marion Wright, who, yes. who you talk about, would be the first. Negro woman lawyer, speaks of this scene, and I think this is very human. I'd been with Bob Moses one evening, and dogs, the police dogs, kept following us down the street. Bob was saying he wasn't used to dogs, you know, and he wasn't brought up around dogs. He was really afraid of them. And then came the march and the dogs growling and police pushing us back, and there was Bob, refusing to move back, walking, walking toward the dogs. And somehow the drama that is here, the overwhelming impact, he's scared stiff of these And yet there is something else, that impelling something else that you say, is in each of us. Yeah, this is,
1: you know, they're not heroes, and they don't have this false bravado. They're scared, and yet they do what they have to do. Uh, Last October, I was in Selma, Alabama, during Freedom Day, and there was a long line of Negroes waiting to register, and there was Sheriff Jim Clark with his gang, uh, with his... Uh, their their clubs and their guns and their multicolored helmets and their electric prod poles, you know, all up and down the street, you know, as if they were preparing against an invasion from another country. Uh, And uh, he wouldn't let the people online leave to get something to eat or to drink or anything, you see. They had to stand there all day long in the hot sun. And he wouldn't let anybody approach them with water or with a sandwich or anything. He said, you know, I ain't going to let you molest these people. <laughs> C- can't bring him any food. And so there were the food carts, which a, a Negro woman in Selma, a Mrs. Boynton, prepared. Uh, she then ran for senator. In, in the movement, people who run for senator also make sandwiches. But she was across the street, was, and the, there was all this food. And there were all these uh, guards, and there was Sheriff Jim Clark and his threats. And two young Negro fellows stepped forward, uh, one uh, Chico Neblet, who went to Southern Illinois University, uh, another named Avery Williams, who went to Alabama State, and they stepped forward and they filled their arms with sandwiches, and they walked across the street uh, towards the line. They never reached the line, and they knew they wouldn't reach the line. The troopers descended on them, and they were down on the ground, and the electric prod poles came out, and they were writhing, and they were tossed into the police wagons. All of this incidentally right in front of the eyes of FBI men and Department of Justice lawyers said they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but uh, I remember that, that moment, uh, I was standing about 15 feet away, when Chico Neblett took the sandwiches and turned to Avery Williams and said, uh, let's go man.
0: <laughs> and, uh, let's go man. <laughs> you know, uh, our guest is Howard Zinn, who I'm sure can be described as the historian Certainly one of the, I would say the historian of the, of the freedom movement, Uh, two of his books, one is both equally moving, The New Abolitionists, uh, the story of the student Nonviolent coordinating committee, published by Beacon Press, commenting from that and from his other book, published by Alfred A. Knopf, The Southern Mystique, and uh, I should point out too that you're the Alfred Beveridge Award winner for historical writing too, among other of your attributes, teaching for what was it seven years at Spelman? Spelman the Negro Girls' School in, in um, Atlanta, and now teaching at Boston University. University. You know, a good way to end this, there's so much. We've just brushed mm. the surface of both these books. And there's a depth and a profundity. And I say oh, over and above that, that, that hope that you, if you could just perhaps read the last two paragraphs of uh, The Southern Mystique, The South is a Mirror. Uh, let me go back over
1: my uh, argument. The South is everything its revilers have charged and more than its defenders have claimed. It is racist, violent, hypocritically pious, xenophobic, false in its elevation of women, nationalistic, conservative, and it harbors extreme poverty in the midst of ostentatious wealth. The only point I have to add is that the United States, as a civilization, embodies all of those same qualities. That the South possesses them with more intensity simply makes it easier for the nation to pass off its characteristics to the South, leaving itself innocent and righteous. In any truth which is knotted and complex, we can choose what strand we want to grasp. To pick out the South has the advantage of focusing attention on what is worst, but it has the disadvantage of glossing over the faults of the nation. It is particularly appropriate in this time when the power of the United States gives it enormous responsibility to focus our critical faculties on those qualities which mark or disfigure our nation. With this approach the South becomes not damnable but marvelously useful as a mirror in which the nation can see its blemishes magnified so that it will hurry to correct them. In effective psychotherapy the patient is at first disturbed by self-recognition then grateful for the disclosure. It is the first step towards transformation and in the 1960s this nation with its huge potential for good, needs to take another look in the mirror. We owe this to ourselves and to our children.
0: Howard Zinn, thank you very much. Thank you, I enjoyed that.